A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host and fellow agitator is out working today. And he's supposed to be in a union. What's up with that? In his stead, we've got friend of the show from Spice Radio, Ben Job, running the board. What's up, y'all? Appreciate that. We are live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today on the show, Selma City workers say minimum wage? Fine. You get minimum work. Incarcerated workers in Alabama continue their strike, and a paper mill in South Alabama looks set to be locked out. Inflation is real. How are we responding, and how could we respond? All this and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we have a phone number, and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week, and we might play it on the next show. And uh, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online anywhere. You can find anything online. We are newly and recently on TikTok. We are on YouTube Facebook, wherever you get your podcasts, Twitter, all you got to do is search for The Valley Labor Report and you'll be able to find us. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you think that what we are doing is fun to listen to, is informative, is good, then consider making a one-time or a monthly donation at tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also buy our new hat and uh, uh, our stickers on our website at tvlr.fm slash store. If you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. So our first segment today, I wanted to give you an update about the municipal workers for the city of Selma. We talked about them going on strike last week. This involved 65 employees with the cemetery, public works, and recreation departments. They were striking over the city council's refusal to approve the mayor's budget proposal, which included a 5% raise across the board for municipal employees, which, let's remember and put in context, is a pay cut in today's inflationary environment. Inflation is between 8 and 10% right now. So what is a 5% raise? That's a 5% pay cut in real terms. That's what the mayor was proposing and that's what the employees were willing to settle for. And an increase in the wage floor, the mayor proposed to $12 an hour. 
This was the position of the mayor and of the employees working for the city of Selma. A 5% raise across the board and a, and a minimum wage of $12 an hour. That is super reasonable. In fact, I would say it's not nearly enough, but that's what the workers uh, said that they, were, they would be okay with, and so we support them in that. Currently, the minimum wage for the city of Selma employees is $9 an hour. The city council came back to the mayor's proposal with an offer of no raise and a minimum wage of $11 an hour. Wow, how generous. And then they had the gall to get upset with the workers for going on strike. Some business owners were saying they were bullying the city council of Selma. Pathetic. Pathetic. So Brad Fisher at the Selma Sun has been doing some really good reporting on this and keeping us updated on the action there. And the update is that the strike is over, but they are doing something of a work slowdown. He quoted Dr. Denisha Hendricks of the Parks and Recreation Department, who spoke about the situation with a local radio program. Dr. Denisha Hendricks said, Our employees, based on the actions of the council to reject the mayor's proposed budget, said they will do minimum work for minimum pay. For minimum pay, they will perform minimum work. Hendricks said it is not a strike. They are reporting to work, but they feel in their words, they will not be performing working as indentured servants for minimum pay. And this makes sense. This makes sense. I tell you what, you're not going to get my top performance at $9 an hour. I'll tell you that right now. It's nice to see a boss in the press not trying to destroy their workers as well. That's a very, very not common thing <laughs> that is very, very uncommon to see a supervisor in the press supporting their workers as they fight for a raise. So that's good to see. It's also good to see the press, I think, I think accurately reporting the situation down there in the Selma Sun. So we appreciate that. Um, but, you know, also it is worth mentioning that if the workers got what they're asking for, which is a 5% raise across the board for municipal employees, it would, of course, help help the supervisors as well. So, you know, it's not totally unself-interested. Uh, Brad Fisher also mentioned something that the mayor said in a recent episode of his apparently weekly podcast addressing the city about the comparison to the raises already given to public safety employees, which is police and fire. Let's listen to what the mayor said in his podcast here. $2.6 million increase in payroll for public safety. Public safety only, police and fire. To do everything else that we talked about, that the department heads and I are advocating for the employees uh, that are non-public safety related. We're talking about $266,000 to give the laborers, our skilled workers, our middle managers, the proposed raises that we hammered out, it would cost the city $266,000. Folks, that's less than 10% of what we've already done. That's why we are saying that to do this for the employees that are not public safety related is not going to hurt what we've already done. We've already done 2.6 million. To add $266,000 to satisfy the needs so that our workers can have 
be at least approaching a livable wage is not too much to ask. Wow. I would say not, <laughs> Mayor Perkins. I would say not. 10% of the money that they gave to cops and firefighters is what they're proposing to give to the laborers. Now, it's possible, I don't know, it's possible that there are more cops and firefighters than laborers for the city of Selma. In fact, I would say it's probable, and so that's going to be part of the reason that the raises for the cops and firefighters is going to be more than the raises for the, uh, uh, for the laborers for the city of Selma. So, you know, that's something to consider. But still, we're talking about a pay cut, 5% pay raise, and we're talking about increasing the minimum wage to $12 an hour for laborers for the city of Selma. That would be 10%, 10% of the increase that was given to public safety employees. I don't think that's an unreasonable investment. Mayor Perkins expanded on the need to grant this raise to the laborers and the disrespect the council has shown the laborers. Let's, let's listen to this. It's astounding. Folks, I want you to get your calculator out and take a look at what $9 an hour. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to get mine out and I'm going to calculate it with you. $9 an hour. What, what you're looking at is 2,080 hours in a work year. That's 52 weeks a year. 40 hours a week, and you multiply that $9 an hour times 2,080. Folks, you know what that is, 2,080 hours times $9, that's $18,720. $18,720, that's the annual pay for a person that's making $9 an hour. Folks, the president of the council makes $20,000. The president of the council makes $20,000. The guys that are working 40 hours a week, five days a week, in the hot sun, are making 18720 How can anyone vote to not give them the $12 that they're asking for? The $12 an hour times the 2080. Folks, if anybody, 2080, I'm, I'm doing it now while we're talking. That uh, time, the $12 times the 2,080 hours, that comes to $24,960. They at least got a chance. They at least have their dignity. They at least want, want to come to work. They at least have something to take home after their full week's way of work. We're not asking for much. And for anybody to say they ought to be grateful and they ought to be thankful for what we're giving them, do you realize that there are people on the council who were questioning why the employees, why the laborers were even coming to the council meeting? Why are you coming? What kind of games you playing? The mayor got y'all up doing this. No, the mayor had nothing to do with that. Listen, when the police department raises were on the table, all the police officers showed up at the council meeting. When the fire department raises were on the table, all the fire department personnel showed up at the council meeting. When the laborers uh, pay was coming up. They showed up at the council meeting and the council snobbed them, would not discuss it in their presence, went behind closed doors and made a decision without any public conversation. It's not right. It's not right. You don't treat people that way. These are not indentured servants. These are not our... Look, we have a, a responsibility to treat our workers with dignity. And that's all I'm advocating for. I am at. 
So kudos to this mayor, man. He is, I mean, he's really, really laying it out there in extremely stark terms. The, the president of the city council of Selma makes $20,000 a year, which is a part-time job being city council, seeing, being a city council member for the city of Selma. Part-time job. And they are making more than the laborers. It's amazing. And the fact that they would not discuss the raises in the presence of the laborers when they do the same thing for the cops and the firefighters? That is just insane. Just really, really insane. Infinite Content in the YouTube chat says, I have never seen a mayor advocate for workers like that before when it didn't uh, apply to police slash fire departments. And yeah, me neither. Me neither. This is... Uh, this is all that I have seen from this mayor, but from this episode, from his performance here, um, I'm really impressed. I'm really impressed with him. Maybe we'll get him on the show sometime. Uh, it, it's it, 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 it's just amazing. It, it's really amazing. Um, but the latest is that there is no budget. There's no budget right now. The council approved a continuing resolution while they continue to negotiate with the uh, with with the mayor. So their fiscal year ended last night at midnight, uh, Friday night at midnight. They're in a new fiscal year this morning, Saturday morning, October 1st. They're in a new fiscal year so uh, so as to ensure that they did not run afoul of the law and be operating the city without a budget. They passed a continuing resolution. They passed a continuing resolution to continue spending, which basically can, continues the status quo. Uh, you know, it, it, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, and they're going to continue negotiations with the mayor about this budget. Um, and we will continue to update you on this as it unfolds. Uh, but we appreciate Mayor Perkins' advocacy for the workers there. And we hope that they get, uh, I you know, I almost, uh, the thing to say would normally be what they deserve. But I think, uh, call me crazy, laborers deserve more than $12 an hour. Uh, so... I don't know. Maybe that's crazy, but uh, but at least they, you know, hopefully they'll get twelve dollars an hour. That's uh, that seems to be what they're asking for right now. So, have we got John Glenn in the Zoom, Ben? We sure do. We sure do. That's great. So next up, we are bringing back John Glenn from the Alabama Political Reporter for an update on the prison strike. John, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So this story has really, really blown up this situation with the prisons in Alabama. The New York Times is on it now. Do you know if you were the one to break? Were you actually the one to break this story? Um, I mean, I'm fairly certain that we were the first to put out a story that there might be a prison strike that Monday. Um, I know that WVUA 23, I believe it is, which is a Tuscaloosa and Newport area affiliate station uh, they did uh, a story about it i mean it doesn't really matter how exactly it broke or who exactly it broke mm. mainly that the thing actually happens and that um, now the coverage that uh, needs to be happening on it is happening on it um but um again did we lose it's him? just one of those things miss y'all hear me yeah you just broke up for a second yeah what sorry the about last that couple things you said it's it's um, just, you know, I, I'm fairly certain we were the first to, to put out a story that there might be a strike, but um, I, I don't really know. I, I don't know. 
I can't find anything elsewhere that 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 predates yeah. that article. Well, you know, we really appreciate your work. As far as I'm concerned, I think that your reporting on it has been authoritative. I think that um, you're you're. I, I don't think I've seen anything um, anything new really outside of of what you've what you've put out. Um, and, and so we we I think that you've been doing great work on this. I'm sure it's kept you busy. Um, but you know, last we left off, we were looking at a prison strike potentially happening. This was last Saturday when we talked to you about your article talking about the, the potentiality of a prison strike. And, and so uh, that, that's where we left off as far as, you know, if, if, people are just, if, if people are just kind of getting their news from the Valley Labor Report, okay, well, the last thing that we heard was that maybe there's a strike happening. So, you know, I think most people know, but, uh, but John, did the strike happen? Uh, yes, I mean the strike that was described, at least to me, and in interviews with individuals inside and outside of the Alabama correction system, uh, did happen on Monday. And um, the, I mean, how and that Monday the ADOC puts out a statement saying that they are experiencing uh, work stoppages at all major facilities, which is as close to a confirmation that the general strike did happen that Monday, and the way that it was going to happen uh, from the ADOC. Um, I mean, again, from conversation that I've had with individuals, uh, it's it's been largely peaceful. There has been um, a couple of instances um, in, say, like Staten that I've done some reporting on, um, also at Limestone. Um, but otherwise, it has been uh, peaceful and is, I mean, at least to my knowledge, one of the largest um, uh, protests, peaceful protests and strikes from uh, incarcerated individuals, at least in this state. I'm fairly certain it would be considered the largest. Um, in that New York Times article that you were mentioning uh, earlier, there was an estimation that one of the organizers for the outside rally that happened that Monday at the ADOC headquarters in Montgomery, that 80% of the uh, incarcerated population that we have in this state participated uh, in the general strike. Now, what it looks like currently, I, I mean, there is some conflicting reports, but again, there appears to be uh, work stoppages, again, at all major facilities. The last time the ADOC confirmed that um, these work stoppages were affecting facilities and they differed differently from facility to facility uh, was Wednesday. And um, I'm, I'm anticipating that continuing at least into the next week. This is pre that, that's, that's pretty amazing. So it started off with approximately 80% participation from prison, state prisons across the state of Alabama. And, and it's continuing in all major facilities today. Presumably not at, at maybe 80%, but the strike is still very much continuing today. Is the understanding. Uh, yes. Yeah, presumably. There, there has been, I, I've heard rumors that, for instance, at Elmore and Adventurous, and I'm sure at some other facilities, I think a Limestone, there was also some rumors about this. There are uh, individuals going back to work. Um, I, from what I've been told, uh, and this is not from the ADOC, this is just from, from individuals I spoke to within the system, Elmore and Ventress are at full operations. Again, that's not confirmable at this moment. They, I mean, I haven't been able to get that confirmed from the ADOC, um, but it does appear again that uh, that most other facilities are are continuing with that. And um, yeah, we got a question in the chat from Infinite Content. He said that I read that Alabama takes sixty to seventy percent of inmates' pay, and also that they have prison workers leased out to Burger Kings. Is that <laughs> is that the case? Um, I have no idea about that Burger King um, instance, but I mean, 
for the jobs that uh, have quotas, for instance, like uh, furniture production and license plate production, I know that um, those individuals that work in those um, uh, in, in those jobs uh, don't even receive, I think, a dollar for their work. And I, I can't remember if it's per hour or per day. I'm fairly certain that that um, that estimation on the amount of money that is taken from these individuals who work in these prisons, uh, producing stuff that gets sent to the outside, at least. Uh, that is taken from um, uh, incarcerated individuals. I, I do not think you get paid for working in the kitchen, but again, I don't know. It's, that's something I need to look into a little bit more. What has the state's response been to this strike? I mean, from what I've been told, and again, from what I've been able to read, it's a arrogance of the situation at best, and at worst, it's an indifference to the suffering and the inhumane conditions that we've vehemently discussed. Um, and, uh, the facilities, at least from, from the correctional system standpoint, their response, uh, they've switched to two meals daily, uh, which is the holiday meal schedule. And, um, there are massive delays in, in major facilities, certain major facilities. And when those meals do arrive to incarcerated individuals, um, from someone at Limestone that I spoke to somewhat recently, the time that he received his, uh, his last meal on, I believe it was Tuesday, it was about 8.30 p.m. And when he received his meal on um, the, the next day on, on uh, Wednesday, I believe it was, it was at 3.30 p.m. in the afternoon. So that's like 18, 19 hours difference wow. between getting one meal into the other. And the caloric counts are also down. You've seen, I'm sure, as most folks have, the photos on social media of one to two pieces of bread, one to two pieces of cheese, and maybe some grits, uh, which is considered better uh, than what it was previously earlier this week. Um, I mean, right when the uh, general strike started on Monday, I was seeing photos of just like two pieces of bread and like a scoop of peanut butter. And that was considered sufficient for one of two meals that you got in a day. So mm. it's the ADC has vehemently denied that this is any sort of retaliatory tactic against the incarcerated uh, population. Um, whether it is or it isn't, it's obviously um, affecting individuals inside. And um, it's, it's. It, I mean, I can, I can kind of see how they would say that it's a logistical problem since there isn't enough. Even if you know the correctional staff was at their maximum capacity, meaning that all the jobs are filled for prison guards and folks that work in the administration, they still could not do jobs like feeding incarcerated individuals. They have to have incarcerated labor to do those jobs. Um, and so I could kind of see the where they're like, well, this is the only way that we can provide any sort of meal, but it's still highly insufficient. It just, it just is by every metric possible. Um, and from the state, the state's response, um, I mean, Governor Ivey's statement from her office has angered a great deal of individuals. Uh, inside who believe her characterizations of the demands is reductionist at the very least and doesn't take into account the conditions that these individuals live under. Um, yeah. So. And and her response to the demands have been basically like you're asking for two, the, 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 they're unreasonable, quote unquote. That's That was the quote, unreasonable, right? Yeah. And um, a bunch of other you know, stuff that I, I probably shouldn't repeat simply because it it isn't very factual. It isn't anything but very, um, you know, it's, it's very emotionally directed. Um, you know, the the thought, at least from what I've been, what people have been telling me, that um, folks 
wouldn't be supportive of some sort of justice reform and correctional reform in Alabama prisons. Um, that's what her office said, that you know people in Alabama would not want any of these um, demands met, any of these reforms met. I, I, I think that's a, a broad mischaracterization, and a fair amount of folks I've talked to believe that too. So, Right, right. And what is um, what what are the demands again? Well, I I can I'll just read them off as um, as they were delivered to the ADOC that Monday by outside organizers uh, who were outside at the the headquarters. They actually went into the little um, the uh, front entryway, the, uh, the the main office. They weren't met by anyone. There was a bunch of people in the back, but nobody actually came to the decks to receive the demands. Um, these include. The repeal of the habitual offender law immediately, um, the making of the presumptive sentence in Sanders retroactive immediately, the repeal of the drive-by standard, uh, drive-by shooting statute, the creation of a statewide correction or com- convictions integrity unit, uh, mandatory parole criteria that will guarantee parole to all eligible persons who meet these criteria. Streamlined review process for medical furloughs and review of elderly incarcerated individuals uh, for immediate release, uh, reduction of the 30-year minimum for juvenile offenders to no more than 15 years before they are eligible for parole, um, and you know victims should not be able to keep protesting after incarcerated citizens second time going up for parole. So these that's that's the scope of the demands that were um, uh, given to. Uh, the ADOC. And and something that's in the first line of this, for instance, um, because you have the demands and then you, you have a, a statement from the organizing members, um, it's that the U.S. Justice Department intervene immediately and, um, and, and take over these prisons because in their minds, and they believe that the uh, state is incapable of of, mm-hmm. of handling uh, the situation and um, it's best if the federal government step in. And they and they did they filed a motion for the federal government to step in, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, and I I, I really cannot remember when that uh, when it was filed, but it's been within the last couple of days. The plaintiffs mm-hmm. in that particular case, all of whom are incarcerated individuals with some sort of uh, uh, medical ailment or or something similar to that, um, they argued that the DOJ's suit was incomplete. Um, without this newest round of unconstitutional treatment that they've uh, faced during the strike, uh, leading up to the strike, um, and um, again describing the situation within the uh, the state correctional systems as a humanitarian crisis, um, and the motion is requesting that the courts order Im- uh, immediate intervention. So. Yeah, and, and and you know, so some of these demands, they are, they would require legislation, but there are several that have to do with the quality of life with these uh, of these inmates that that do not that they could just you know the the executive branch of the Alabama state government could do could make happen. Um, I saw yesterday that some so folks Jacob, we do have a are, caller on the line. If you want to take any questions before we go to break. Yeah, yeah. I'll ask this question to John, and then we can bring him on the line. Uh, I saw yesterday that there's a protest that folks are scheduling for October 14th. Are we expecting the strike to continue through then, you think, John? I I really I, I don't feel comfortable exactly predicting the length of this. I expect it definitely to last until 
uh, next week, um, whether all facilities um, will be experiencing worker stoppages remains to be seen. Again, with the stuff we've been hearing, at least at APR from uh, Elmore and at Ventress, um, but at least to when that protest is supposed to happen. And the one you're referring to, I believe, is the one that's supposed to be at the, the Capitol complex on the 14th. Um, that one, I, I imagine that the, the strike will continue in some form uh, to that date. Yes. Okay. Ben, let's bring the caller on, on the line. Um, and, you know, if you could, uh, uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? And, and what's your question? Uh, yes, my name's Charles. Uh, I'm, I'm formerly with Stacy Lee George's campaign for governor. One of the things that we ran on was the prison situation which uh, Judge Myron Thompson has said book, uh, benchmarks must be uh, achieved by de midnight on December the 31st in relation to a whole lot of these things. And if the uh, Alabama legislature hasn't done anything to uh, follow the uh, judgment of the judge, there could be a problem there. And this is a federal judge, is that right? Yes, it's Federal Judge Myron Thompson. Back in uh, 2017, uh, investigation was done uh, by federal persons um, throughout all, the whole prison system. They found ab abhorrent things, mm -hmm. especially dealing with the uh, mentally challenged persons that were once in the mental health facilities that closed. Because right. as, as a result of things that, that are beyond their control of being harmed, by other prisoners, they have been in a state of uh, isolated incarceration uh, to themselves for a very long period of time now. Because of COVID, uh, Judge Thompson uh, allowed Alabama to uh, continue doing things that they might not be able to do. But he, he uh, wrote a scathing 600-page report that anyone could read on December the 27th of 2021, stating what had to happen or and had to be finished by the middle of uh, 2025. John, how does that, um, how, how do you think that this, uh, that this deadline affects the, maybe the prisoners' calculations and the calculations of the state? Um, I honestly have no idea. I think, um, frankly, that, um, I mean, honestly, if these conditions aren't changed within a reasonable amount of time, the federal intervention is more than likely. But again, that's coming from just someone who has reported on this, not someone who is in any way, shape or form um, uh, aware of the, like particularly the current legal standings of like, for instance, the DOJ lawsuit. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, I think that's all I can offer on that. Charles, thanks for calling in. That's some good context. Hey, um, appreciate it. Yep, thanks. And uh, John, we appreciate your reporting, and uh, we'll be looking to you, folks. Uh, make sure that you're following. M make sure that you know. You ba I, I have the Alabama Political Reporter as as one of my home tabs, <laughs> um, and I have for a while. But but even more so with with John's reporting on the prison strike. Um, any anything in particular about where to find your reporting on the prison strike that you want to mention? Um, it's on Alabama Political Reporter and on our Twitter. That's uh, that's where it shows up, and uh, just appreciate the readership. John, thank you for your time. Of course. Thank you all. Ben, have we got Bobby in the Zoom now? Uh, let me check. 
Or Zoom. I do not see him just yet. We don't see a Bobby in the Zoom. Then we are going to go ahead and go to break. And we will be right back, um, potentially announcing the results of a contract ratification vote by paper mill workers in Fort Mitchell, Alabama. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? 
If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old day. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, but he's working today. Gross. So we've got Ben Job helping us out here at Spice Radio in Huntsville. Hey, hey. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also text us at the same number. Uh, in the chat, we've got uh, we've got some folks talking about the talking about the prison strike. Infinite content says caloric counts. That sounds a lot like uh, what the Israeli government's doing to the Palestinians. And yeah, no, no kidding. Um, so. Uh, while we wait for um, while we wait for Bobby to get in the Zoom, to I guess the count is going long uh, for the uh, uh, for the contract vote down there in Fort Mitchell. I want to talk to y'all about this um, about Yellowhammer News for a second. Um, Yellowhammer News is this they're this multimedia you know quote unquote news organization right in Alabama um, that. And they say that they want to be a source for Alabamians to get their news about the state. From their website, they say, quote, Our mission is to tell readers something that they did not know about something they love. The great state of Alabama. Whether breaking news, hometown stories, or sharp political coverage, Yellowhammer News strives to deliver the highest quality content with integrity. <laughs> wow integrity. Importantly, though, they also want to base these stories in fact. Again, from their website, they say facts are the lifeblood of our media outlet. Yellowhammer strives to deliver content based in fact and edifying for the consumers of our content. Yellowhammer's process of content creation consists of numerous levels of fact-checking and careful editing. Creating trustworthy content is essential to the duties we owe our consumers. And they acknowledge that maybe they're going to get some things wrong every now and then, and maybe their coverage is going to need updating, or maybe they'll need some additional context. That's pretty humble of them. Here's from the same section of their website. Quote, while Yellowhammer endeavors toward perfection, no one is perfect. Therefore, we constantly monitor our content should the need arise for updates and corrections 
and make appropriate notations of such when necessary. Yellowhammer as an organization encourages the consumers of our content to inform us if that if and when they see content in need of corrections or updates. That's pretty nice. That's pretty nice. So, you know, I assumed I assumed as any normal person would um, that maybe they take the stuff that they write half serious. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe they they half mean it, and uh, you know they put it on their website, right? So, so that you know, just kind of on that assumption, I think in my view that the strike involving a thousand coal miners and their families in rural Alabama, the strike involving a thousand coal miners that's been going on for over five hundred days, over a year and a half. The longest strike in the state's history is definitely an important story for our state. And their coverage of this issue has been severely, severely lacking. In fact, since the strike began a year and a half ago, I can only find three articles about it on their website. The first came the day the strike began, and in this article titled, get this, Wire Met Coal, our priority is keeping people employed with long-lasting careers. That's the title of the article covering the strike the day it begins from Yellowhammer News. In this article, they do not get the perspective of a single coal miner a single time. Instead, the whole article is literally a reprint of the press release of the international private equity firm owned Warrior Met Coal. Yellowhammer News readers do not hear about all the things as the strike is beginning. Yellowhammer News readers do not hear about all the things that these miners gave up to save the company from bankruptcy in 2016. They don't hear about the long hours. They don't hear about the $7 an hour pay cut. They don't hear about cuts to their health care, cuts to their retirements. None of the sacrifices that the workers made to keep this company afloat, the company that Walter Scheller and his cronies on the board took into bankruptcy, Walter Scheller, the CEO of Warrior Matt Cole, also the CEO of Walter Energy, which he took into bankruptcy with the rest of the board of Walter Energy and retained their position as CEO and board of directors after it was repurchased by international private equity firms. They got to keep their jobs and they did not take a pay cut. In fact, they have gotten significant pay increases. Yellowhammer News don't read any of that though. They only read, Yellowhammer News readers only read what it is that Yankee capitalists are saying about this strike. That's the only thing that they're reading. The second came in October. In this one, yet again, we simply get a reprint of a Warrior Met press release about, quote, union violence. You don't get any comment from the union. You don't hear about the violence that the strikers are going through. You don't hear that they've been hit on the picket lines by bosses and scabs. You don't hear that scabs have shot at them with guns on the picket line. You don't hear that the union says in many of the videos that Warrior Met put out that they're highly edited and that what happened before is actually that the scabs hit the strikers first. 
So you've got these videos of striking coal miners, breaking car windows, and and you'll say, wow, oh man, that's that sounds terrible. Oh no, they they hurt somebody's property. The horror of it. But what you don't see in those videos that Warrior Met put out is that actually what happened is that the car hit them. And then they defended themselves. You don't hear that Alabama state troopers with our tax dollars are giving Alabama coal miners who are on strike tickets for going the speed limit. Alabama state troopers, on our dime, <laughs> right, they're being, their labor is being paid for by public money. They're pulling over striking Alabama coal miners for going the speed limit in front of emergency escorts of out-of-state scabs. Yellowhammer News readers don't get any of this. They don't get any of that. They just get the press release by the company owned by Yankee capitalists. The third and final article on the strike came in October. In this one, you guessed it, they reprinted the company's press release accusing the striking miners without evidence of an explosion that happened at the mine. Yellowhammer news readers don't hear that the union condemned this act. They don't hear that there is no evidence to support any connection to the union. And they don't hear that now, over half a year later, Yellowhammer News has not provided an, up, an update saying that there has still been no evidence provided that this is connected to the union, despite the company so desperately wanting this to be the case. So desperately wanting this to be the case that they issued a $25,000 reward for information uh, leading to the capture of the guilty party. A $25,000 reward. And over six months later... Nothing has connected this explosion to the union. And Yellowhammer News don't, Yellowhammer News readers do not hear that. But they might still remember that article from back in October when Warrior Matt accused them of the explosion. And let's remember for a second who the two sides are. On the one hand, we've got a group of Alabama coal miners who have been mining there. For, in some cases, literally actually generations. You've got actual generations of coal miners in this mine. Some fathers and sons actually working in there together currently. Or were. Were doing it. Cur were doing it. You've got folks in that mine who are mining the same place as their granddaddy. They are organized into a union that is run by and for coal miners. The entire operating revenue of the United Mine Workers of America is made up from member dues. Its members are almost entirely Southern. The headquarters is in West Virginia. The president of the International Union is a Vietnam veteran. Salt to the earth people, if ever the name could be applied to anybody, right? And people who gave up so much five years ago to bring the company out of bankruptcy. $6 an hour pay cuts, let's remember. 20% cuts to their health care. Working seven days a week in many instances. And what are they asking for? Simply a return to the pre-bankruptcy status quo. And who do we have on the other side? 
We've got a group of executives that steered Walter Energy into bankruptcy in 2015, a CEO whose pay has almost tripled since then, and a group of executives who got to keep their jobs after steering the company into bankruptcy have gotten similar raises. It's a company that's owned by a consortium of international private equity firms, BlackRock in New York, Fidelity in DC, there's one from Australia, and several others. Millionaires who are saying that Alabama coal miners don't deserve what they have now, much less restoring the status quo. And Yellowhammer News, let's remember, supposedly an Alabama outlet dedicated to journalism that reflects our people, our state, and our culture. Yellowhammer News isn't even telling its readers both sides of the story, much less siding with, you know, quote-unquote, our people. I have informally pitched people with connections to write about the strike. I've informally pitched people with connections to Yellowhammer News to write about the strike for them. This whole time I have, always being told that they wouldn't be interested. But recently I wrote a piece for In These Times that takes Democrats to task for not supporting these miners despite saying they are pro-union. And so, you know, I figured maybe a bit of this anti-Democrat partisanship that Yellowhammer News has would get me in the door. Right. Because I wrote a piece attacking Democrats for, you know, for good reason. And so I did formally pitch it to their editor in chief. Uh, and <laughs> about a month later, I never got a reply. So, you know, whatever. I figure it's not happening. And I mention it on Twitter. I say we pitched this article, which was run by In These Times magazine and the Alabama political reporter to Yellowhammer News' Dylan Smith as well. It'd be the first piece in Yellowhammer News, which is a news source ostensibly for Alabama citizens, about the strike that wasn't a reprint of the Warrior Met press release, which is factually true. It would be, if they had run my piece, it would be the first article in Yellowhammer News about the strike that was not a reprint of a Yankee capitalist press release. That is factually accurate. And to which Dylan Smith replied that his feelings were hurt. <laughs> he said, quote, communications 101, shred the outlet that you're lobbying to have your have place your content. Brilliant strategy. Uh, and yeah, look, buddy, <laughs> like, I don't care if you run my piece. I don't care if you run my piece. I get it run elsewhere. I can talk on the radio. I, I'm on multiple stations. I don't need your piece, your, my piece to be running your outlet. I would love for your readers to get some a bit of objectivity. I would love for them to hear about the strike from somebody other than bankers. That would be nice. But it doesn't matter to me. But it very much hurt his feelings. And, you know, look, if he cares as editor-in-chief of Yellowhammer News about fulfilling its mission statement, if he cares about bringing important news stories to their readership driven by facts and integrity, it shouldn't matter to him if the facts about their coverage of this strike so far hurt his feelings. In fact, I would think a person driven by integrity would be stung but thankful for the criticism. And they would strive to do better if they were driven by integrity. I know that I don't let personal relationships affect my coverage. In fact, I've covered issues where I feel like some people involved have personally wronged me in certain ways. And yet, I set that aside and I cover the issue in a way that I think politically makes sense. 
I set aside and cover the issue truthfully and accurately because I care about the other people involved, my sisters, my brothers, other working Alabamians, more than I care about my own hurt feelings and personal grudges. That's the way that I think media ought to operate. Instead, while masquerading itself as a voice for the people of Alabama, Yellowhammer News is nothing more than a mouthpiece for Yankee capital as it attempts to ground our fellow citizens to dust. Um, so let's go ahead and we're going to go ahead and take our final break. We've got Hadass Tier in the Zoom. She's going to be talking to us about inflation, which is a subject on everybody's mind. So we are really looking forward to talking to her. So let's go ahead and take that break, and we will be right back with Hadass Tier. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, 
and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. show this is the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison my co-host is adam keller but he's out today ben Job is taking his place for the day if you've got anything to add you can give us a call the phone number is 844-899-TVLR you can also text us there or participate in our youtube and facebook live chats we're gonna go ahead and get right to our next guest uh, and we're going to be talking about inflation. Inflation is on everybody's mind today, so we're bringing on somebody who has become the go-to authority for a left labor-focused analysis and response to inflation. She is author of A People's Guide to Capitalism and the author of the most of the cover story for the most recent issue of In These Times, A Left Answer on Inflation. Hadas Tier, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Thanks so much for having me. So just as a super basic elementary, you know, foundation to start on, what is what is inflation? Well, the basic definition of inflation is sort of easy enough, right? It's just a rise in prices that's somewhat generalized around the economy. It's not just one particular commodity or industry where uh, prices are rising, but something that's more generalized around the economy. So I think um, that part is straightforward. And then the trickier part is why it comes about and how to how to address it, um, which, you know, we can talk more about. But I will just say in terms of the big picture that I think is important to keep in mind when we talk about that is that there's there's only one set of people that actually control prices. You know, it's mm -hmm. not workers don't have a say so, generally speaking, in what the prices are of the things that we produce. 
uh, despite the fact that you know workers are often blamed, uh, you know workers' wages are blamed for inflation, but workers don't set prices, right? The bosses do, uh, and they do so for particular reasons to keep uh, a certain rate of profit for themselves. So we can dig more into that, but I think that's the sort of big picture of uh, you know who it, inflation is a rise in prices, and then who is it that controls prices? Uh, it's generally corporate CEOs. Right, right. And, you know, you, you kind of touched on on that uh, in your answer, uh, saying that, you know, workers are some are sometimes are often blamed for inflation. And, and so what is what is the conservative understanding, which is really which is really, I, I think, in a, in a lot of cases, become the mainstream understanding of how this round of inflation has come about? Yeah, exactly. I mean, conservative economics really have dominated mainstream discourse for the last few decades, which was kind of the point of my article that you were um, that that you mentioned is that we have to take a look at what the the you know mainstream analysis and discussion is and what the roots of that are and they're and they're quite conservative and I think it's important for the left to be able to come back with our own. Uh, answers to what causes inflation and how do we combat it. I think that there is, um, on the surface level, there is somewhat widespread consensus around what the immediate triggers have been for this uh, round of inflation. Um, You know, that the effects of the pandemic on supply chains basically wrecked havoc on, um, you know, the, the basic... Uh, equilibrium of supply and demand uh, in in the markets that you had people in the in the early stages of the pandemic largely staying home, uh, not going out and and buying uh, you know going out and 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 um, uh, purchasing services and things like that. Um, when the economy reopened. Um, all sorts of pent-up demand for both goods and services uh, increased dramatically, and supply chains weren't able to keep up with that because all sorts of uh, companies had ratcheted down production, had ratcheted down what they had, uh, you know, in storage, all all sorts of things like that. And of course, the fact that over the last few decades, companies have really focused on what's called just-in-time production, where they don't keep a lot on hand in terms of storage uh, so that they can produce things uh, as uh, quickly and, and prof- profitably as possible without having the overhead of storage costs. Um, that exacerbated the problem. So um, that was really the immediate trigger. And I think that there is you know, somewhat widespread consensus around that. Uh, but then the question is, why has inflation stuck around? And here's where um, you know, political biases uh, certainly come into play when when you talk about what the what the narrative is uh, and and why that is. And you know the the formula that conservative economics has used for decades um, is is really to to always blame uh, essentially workers' wages um, and and uh, as well as government spending as being the main culprits of inflation. Um, and, you know, the 
the, the basic idea here, right, is that when the government spends more money, uh, that increases, you know, that increases the amount of cash that's on hand in the economy, and that, that, that then there is more demand for goods. Um, at the same time, those same policies uh, feeds into, you know, supporting lower unemployment rates. Uh, and low unemployment is, you know, the sort of boogeyman of mainstream economics, um, where if you have, the, the idea is if you have too low unemployment, then that increases workers' uh, bargaining power. Because if, uh, you know, if there's a low unemployment, then workers on the job will feel more confident to make demands and not worry about being easily replaced um, you know, feel like maybe if they if, if things don't work out, they could go to another job, et cetera. And I think that that has helped to fuel a lot of what we've seen over the last year of more unionization drives uh, mm. at low wage workplaces like uh, Starbucks and Trader Joe's and so on. Um, the fact that there's been a tight labor market, that there's been low unemployment has helped to increase uh, workers' bargaining power. That, of course, is a good thing. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, as far as you're concerned, as far as millions right. of workers are concerned. But that's a, a problem for, um, you know, people at the Federal Reserve and conservative economists and so on. And the idea is that so long as there's lower unemployment and workers have an increased uh, uh, bargaining power, then that will lead to uh, eventually higher wages. Uh, and those higher wages will um, increase the cost of production for, for corporations and they'll pass those off, those costs off onto consumers through higher prices. Now there's a couple of problems with this narrative. Um, mm -hmm. One is that why is it that automatically a higher cost of production has to be passed off onto consumers by bosses? Again, that goes back to the first point that it's, it's CEOs that determine prices, not workers. Um, right. And so the fact that they pass off those um, costs onto consumers is because they want to keep a certain rate of profit, um, a phenomenally, absurdly high rate of profit, um, which is what we see today. Um, if they were able to, um, or were forced to uh, keep the prices at a certain level, um, that would just mean they would take a hit to their rate of profit. Um, and you know, that, that would be a good thing in, in, in my book. Um, but that's obviously uh, anathema to uh, the, you know, economic and political elite in this country. So, right, and then right. the other and, thing and I'll the, just... Well, yeah, well, the, the Fed is, is responding basically in as if the issue is, is workers having high, high, uh, higher wages and the tight labor market. Um, and it's, it's crazy how that has become the issue workers having higher wages and um <clears throat> and the the labor market being tight even as at the same time republicans nationally are on an anti-immigrant kick for which one of the ostensible causes is to get undocumented immigrants out of the labor market so that it could be tighter. I mean, it's just the I was I was literally yesterday on a local conservative radio show, and the host turned 
an issue of child labor in the state of Alabama into an issue of undocumented immigration and how we should actually just deport all these people so that Alabama worker, Alabama citizens could make higher wages at these Hyundai facilities. And at the same time, the Fed is, tr is driving us into a recession by, <laughs> by increasing interest rates. And, and so if, if the, I, the dichotomy there is, is really, really is fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's totally contradictory and, um, and hypocritical and all the rest of it, but it, it just goes to the fact that these are all political questions, you know, that the way that the economy gets talked about as, as though it's this neutral objective situation um, well, the economy needs X, Y, or Z thing, and that's why we have to increase uh, interest rates and, and drive up unemployment. Uh, oh, by the way, that will risk a recession, but that's just what the economy calls for, as though it's just this like objective situation and not a political question. And all of these things are driven by politics. You know, mm -hmm. uh, who is going to be made the price? Uh, who is going to be made to pay the price uh, at whose at whose expense and, and whose benefit and so on. It's it's ultimately a political question. And so the question of interest rate increases, um, that they're happening and they're huge. The interest rate increases are huge. I actually, I'm really, really kicking myself um, because last year I was looking at buying a house and I had I had just enough, just enough that I, I could have bought a house um, but I, I would have had almost nothing left uh, after the down payment. Um, and so instead of doing that, I moved back in with my parents and uh, to save money, to save money for a down payment, presumably so I could have, you know, uh, something of a cushion. Now, I was I was thinking, OK, I'll, I'll save money for a year and then I'll have a cushion and I'll buy a house. And now I'm looking at buying a house and. The down pay or, and the the monthly mortgage price, uh, the the monthly mortgage payment for me would be two hundred dollars more for the same price house I was looking at a year ago. That's even assuming I get a house for the same price, with a down payment that is five times as large. If I put down ten thousand dollars last year on a two hundred fifty thousand dollar house, um, I would be paying two hundred dollars less. Than I would be paying now with a $50,000 down payment because of the interest rate increases. So what are some of the other ways that the interest rate increases are affecting workers uh, besides hugely increased mortgage payments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's mortgages, um, there's credit card payments, um, you know, anywhere where uh, interest rates uh, impact you know, our, our debt, um, you know, that has huge consequences. The other aspect of it is that the underlying reason that the Fed is raising interest rates is to, quote unquote, cool the economy, which is just a euphemism for um, increasing unemployment, basically. Uh, so base that the idea is when you raise interest rates, it's more expensive to borrow money. It's more expensive for me or you to buy a house or a car or pay off our credit card debt, but it's also more expensive for companies to borrow money, which is a central part of how companies operate and invest. Um, you know, they can't invest in production without borrowing money. That's how that's how the system works. So 
um, when interest rates are raised, it's a way of slowing down investment, uh, ratcheting down production, uh, and basically, you know, whether it's shuttering plants or reducing capacity, all of that in the end equals, uh, you know, less jobs uh, and higher unemployment. And that's really what the goal is, what they're taking aim at. Uh, is 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 raising that unemployment because uh, the theory is that uh, lower unemployment increases workers' bargaining power and increases wages. Right, and that's a and that's a problem. We can't have workers exactly. making too much money. Exactly, and and you know part of it is that that narrative is flawed, but the other part of it is um, that I think is important for us to talk about is you know, capitalism is an insane system where even a tiny uptick in wages, you know, God forbid, uh, workers who, you know, have had, um, you know, stagnant and, and declining wages for decades, where the minimum wage hasn't gone up in so many years, God forbid, we should witness a slight uptick in wages that has everybody in a panic. And that, to me, is a huge indictment of the kind of uh, system that we live in. So what? So you know, we, we've we've talked about the popular. There, there's there's a popular understanding of how inflation started, which I think I think most people agree on, which is that COVID just totally ruined everything. There was differences in consumer habits, uh, supply chains were distorted, um, and and so you know, I think that there's a broad consensus there, and 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 that's what you said. As we have gone through this, now we're about two years into it, or, uh, you know, going on three, the, the mainstream consensus is starting to converge around those workers are just making too much money, even though we, we know workers' wages are trailing inflation, workers' wages did not start increasing until inflation started increasing, and it is half of inflation. I think the, the, the average wage increase is something like 5%. Inflation is, is like 9%, 8%. And so it, it, it trailed inflation chronologically, and it's trailing inflation numerically, but somehow still the wages are the issue, and, that, and, and the mainstream consensus has converged on that. And so they're beginning to uh, increase interest rates, which are gonna, which is gonna harm investment, which is going to hurt ability to hire, which is gonna hurt ability to um, for workers to take out mortgages and things like this, and so this is obviously bad for workers. Um, what are other alternative explanations to inflation now from from a from a different perspective? You know, if we if we say like, okay. Maybe it's not that workers are making too much money. <laughs> what are other alternative explanations for inflation? And how could we respond it with those explanations in mind? Sure. Well, first thing to say, just to backtrack for one moment, is that that narrative that you're saying, you know, that there's a growing convergence around um, is just, it's the fallback position and it's a very convenient narrative. So, I, you know, that, that may be an obvious point, but I just wanted to flag it. Obviously, mm -hmm. regardless of the specifics of um, this current inflationary crisis, uh, bosses don't like a tight labor market uh, and they don't like government spending. Um, and so, 
it's a convenient narrative uh, to to constantly go back to. Uh, so I just wanted to to flag that. I think in terms of having a left alternative um, to explaining all of this, one is to say, you know, as a, a sort of backdrop of ex- explaining, you know, there's all sorts of um, different things that play into feeding inflation. And it's a complicated picture. Um, I go through some of it in my article. There's different aspects of it. Obviously, the supply chain um, shocks that you were just talking about, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, just-in-time uh, production methods. Um, there's there's a number of different factors that, that that fuel inflation. But part of the backdrop, I think, that we need to be able to explain as well is that it's a failure of the market. You know, it is very difficult to keep uh, supply and demand in this kind of perfect equilibrium that, you know, classical economic uh, discourse uh, insists is like, you know, possible and uh, is what the system uh, gravitates towards. That's, that's just not, not true. It's a very difficult balance to get right. And the market is, you know, horrible at doing so, especially in times of, you know, uh, crisis and shock like we've seen recently, uh, but even in, in quote unquote, you know, normal periods, the, the market uh, is just not a great system at, at doing that. Uh, and so we are basically held hostage to these wild ups and downs um, that are a result of supply and demand being out of whack. Um, so I think that's part of the big picture narrative that we have to hold in our minds as, you know, while we talk about the, the specific factors um, that have played into this current uh, inflationary crisis. Um, but I think that the, the most important question is, you know, cost of production will rise and fall based on uh, different, uh, different factors. But what do we do about it? Who pays the price for it? And I think that's where we need to get a lot better as a left to be able to combat this kind of uh, well, you know, this idea that it's it's only the Federal Reserve that has power over the economy, and they just have this one tool, which is a very blunt instrument and a very anti-worker instrument. Uh, we need to be able to talk about other alternatives. You know, part of it is talking about, well, there's another way to constrain demand other than raising unemployment, uh, which is taxing the rich, you know. Um, tax, taxing the rich, taxing the wealthy, and also corporate taxes. Co- companies have made uh, made a killing over the last couple of years during the pandemic, and they should be taxed heavily. And that's that's a way to constrain demand at the top rather than at the bottom. So that's that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is how do we control prices? Part of it is, you know, good old-fashioned price controls, uh, which we have seen in uh, historically in this country, us- usually during wartime. But I think, you know, it would be it would behoove us on the left to be able to talk about ways of doing that 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 makes sense in a period of crisis, even if there's not, um, you know, well, there are uh, plenty of wars, but even if we're not in a wartime economy, uh, that those kind of price controls would be really useful, um, especially around targeted um, uh, places where that have the most impact on working people, whether that's um, the cost of food, the cost of rent, um, the cost of gas, 
um, these are things that the government could absolutely put price caps on. Um, and there are such things, obviously, rent control and so on that, that we should be fighting for uh, more of. And then the last thing is, how is it that the government could play a more active role in supporting, you know, in bolstering uh, the, the production of places in, uh, of uh, items where supply has been diminished? Um, the government could play a much more interventionist role. And this kind of, all of these aspects are part, are more broadly part of having more democratic control over the economy. Uh, an economy that's not just runs wild with the vagaries of the free market, uh, but that actually has some kind of uh, more democratic, accountable control um, through through uh, the federal uh, government. And when you say democratic control, you don't mean uh, giving Joe Biden alone the rings of the economy <laughs> and letting Hillary Clinton run everything. You mean a small d, as in exactly allowing people to have more of a say instead of having our lives dictated by, you know, bosses and billionaires. Absolutely. And there's there's some interesting legislation right now. Um, Jamal Bowman, who is uh, one of the uh, New York um, representatives, um, has a, a bill where he talks about um, creating a task force that, could, that would be in charge of... Um, Putting, for, putting forward ideas for what kind of price controls, what kind of regulations, uh, what are the specific um, uh, actionable items that the, the government could take charge of in order to um, you know, fight inflation in a way that doesn't hurt working people more than they've already uh, suffered. What do you think, what do you think, it, it, it seems to me that the labor movement, that the AFL-CIO, should really be at the fore of pushing the Biden administration to, um, to to shift its posture towards the Fed. And you know, and I, I think we saw precedent for sh a shifting posture toward the Fed under the Trump administration, actually, because the the Fed was making moves to raise interest rates under Trump, and Trump pitched a fit. And then the Fed actually lowered interest rates after he did that, uh, and, and so. Biden should be doing that. Uh, why is he not, and why, and, and what could the labor movement be doing to push him to that? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, again, this is the sort of like myth, the mythology of the economy as being this thing that exists out there uh, that's objective, and that the Federal Reserve just needs to be able to operate independently um, because it is charged with this, um, you know, uh, it's charged with this uh, uh, goal in mind of, of, of you know, a, an objective neutral force around the economy. And of course, there's no such thing as objective or neutral when it comes to the economy. Uh, and the Federal Reserve's independence um, makes it one of the least accountable, least democratic institutions that we have. Um, it does all of this in a completely... Um, you know, non-transparent, uh, unaccountable. We don't vote for the, you know, the, the people in charge of the Federal Reserve and so on. Um, so, you know, I think that it's it's a it's a lie. And I, just like you mentioned, with you actually could apply pressure on the Fed and absolutely 
Um, that's what Joe Biden should be doing. And that's what the left and the labor movement uh, needs to be calling for. Um, I think that the other aspect of it, in addition to the, you know, the AFL-CIO should be at the head of you know, that kind of a, of a move uh, to, put, to push uh, Biden um, to, to have better policies um, around inflation and to push the Federal Reserve and so on is also that the labor movement um, needs to be able to push back against this narrative and support workers uh, continuing to unionize and continuing to demand higher wages. Um, that all of this kind of ideological, um, <clears throat> you know, ideological discussions around uh, inflation and who's to blame and, you know, workers' wages and the boogeyman of too low unemployment, all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. um, that, that puts us on the defensive um, right. in terms of the workers' movement um, and, and labor struggles. And we need to be able to push back and say, absolutely not. Quite the contrary, we need to fight for higher wages, especially in light of higher prices. How are we going to pay for basic things that we need to live uh, and thrive and survive? Uh, so I think that that's, that's the other aspect of it. The labor movement needs to be able to uh, push back uh, on both of those fronts, both on the policy front uh, and in terms of supporting organizing efforts and saying uh, that's absolutely not true. Workers' wages are not to blame. We need higher wages uh, and, and greater unionization. We've got about four minutes left. Ben, you said we had a caller on the line. Uh, let's bring him on. And Alrighty. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? And what's your question? Oh, hold on. They're still connecting. Oh, they're still connecting. Have we got him on? Uh, seems like they are not connecting here. Okay, we may have lost them. They waited for a little while. Well, uh, Hadas, I think that that's uh, I, I think that 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 was a a, a great. Uh, I think you've been doing some Hello? great work. I really. Oh, I think we got it. our caller on now. Oh, Sorry, it's just taking a minute. <laughs> caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? What's your question? Uh, my name's Phil. I'm calling from Huntsville. I work for a large manufacturing firm in this area. And I was just curious what what a union could do for us. I mean, I started a year and a half ago. I've had about a $7 pay raise uh, since then. Um, we've had, they just gave us five extra vacation days plus an additional holiday. I mean, what, what would be the point of unionizing a place like that? Yeah, I think I think that's great. I'm I'm extremely happy for you that you got that. I think uh, you know we 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 talk about stuff uh, good for working folks that happen uh, whether or not they they are union, and so that that all sounds great, and I'm really happy for you. Uh, we've got about two and a half minutes left. If you want to continue listening uh -huh. to the show, we are going to be on YouTube and Facebook. But as a beginning to your to your uh, uh, to begin to answer the question, could it be better? Uh, could it be better? It's a startup, so there's a lot of confusion. But I think that that would be with any startup. I don't. I don't know. Right. I mean, I'm. It's. I'm asking a legitimate question. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I no. I think. And I think that's the that's the legitimate answer to 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 start with. And I think we'll we'll try to go more in detail on on the other side once we go into overtime. And you can find us on YouTube and Facebook. But I think the the um you know it can always it can always be better. It, it can always be better. And also 
the things that you like, you're able to uh, keep, you're able to lock in with a union contract because if you, uh, you know, if you don't have a union contract, your boss can change it at any time without consulting you. They can't do that with a union contract. And also, you're always going to have more leverage when you come together as opposed to, uh, you know, as opposed to negotiating uh, individually. Hadas, we got about 30 seconds before we're going to wrap it up. I know this isn't exactly what you what you called to talk about, but do you want to give a quick answer to that? Sure. I mean, I think that the main thing is that you Actually, just don't you know, have... I've been on, on the phone for about 20 minutes. I can't hear her at all. Him at all. I can't oh, can't hear, can't hear Hadas can, at all. Okay. Yeah, Sorry can you hear that. me now? I think... Hello, hello. can you hear me? I was just curious. I'll have to... I'll have to call back in maybe next weekend I, I would like to i was a president of a of an organization in mississippi for police officers mm -hmm. uh in years ago but um so i just i just don't know you know what what would be how we could improve what we've got yeah we'll answer your uh we'll, we'll talk some more about it on the other side of this caller we appreciate your time hadas we appreciate your time uh, folks, if you want to find, uh, if you want to keep listening to the show, you can find us on YouTube and Facebook. You can donate to the show at tvlr.fm/donate. Until then, we'll see you next week. All power to the workers.